Hello and welcome to The Deal Room, where every Wednesday we talk specifically about all things corporate finance, from the biggest M&A and PE deals to the strategy that drives business decision making. We aim to bring what you learn in the classroom to life with real world examples and hopefully at the same time have some fun with it. So let's dive in. Hello and welcome back to The Deal Room and on the agenda with Stephen today, we are going to talk about the IPO market, but more specifically two things, direct listings and SPACs. You've probably heard of the latter, but maybe not for a while. We had that SPAC boom. I remember Trump going into the SPAC space himself. But why has it come off the boil? What exactly is it? So hopefully Stephen's going to explain. But before that, Stephen, um, one thing I saw on the Me LinkedIn just quickly was something called the deal of the week. What is that post and what can people expect from that weekly release from you? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Anne. And uh, yeah, good to good to have you back on the on the Wednesday pod flying <laughs> solo. It's, it's never as fun. <laughs> so every monday on on the amplify me linkedin we are doing a deal of the week so this is a bit of a wrap up of the biggest or the most interesting deal merger acquisition that has happened during the previous week and what we're trying to do is we're trying to give you the key takeaways within a couple of hundred words think about this as your crib sheet or your revision notes if you're going into an interview uh you know, for an internship at an M&A house or something like this. They often ask, you know, talk to me about a deal that you've been interested in. Hopefully these little snippets, deal rationale, who's doing the deal, what are the terms, will give you that that overview that you need. So check it out every Monday, post a comment, tell me if I'm wrong, tell me if there's another deal that you want to talk about, always up for hearing from you. Okay, good stuff. And you can expect that uh, every Monday. And so, look, let's dive in then. Let's talk about uh, direct listings. And I think there's a company here, Surf Air, to use as a real tangible example. So who is this company and, and what is the direct listing process? Yeah, so Surf Air is a company you probably, quite frankly, you probably wouldn't have heard of. But I, I picked up on this headline earlier on the week uh, from Bloomberg, Surf as rough debut serves as cautionary tale for direct listing. So, so what does this mean? So Surfair is a small commuter airline in the US. So the US is obviously a lot larger than the UK and people don't just travel via car or by train. There are airlines that do really, really small intercity or intertown flying. And Surfair is one of those. But it's also got a part of its business that is aiming to electrify some of its fleet. And obviously, electric powertrains for the airline industry is a, a much hype and always around the, just around the corner uh, area of the market and something that investors get quite excited about. But this is less about maybe the company and more about this concept of direct listing. So we spoke on the pod last week about the IPO process and how IPOs might be just coming back, you know, book building, uh, offer price, launch on the day, hopefully get a pop, uh, green shoe options, price stabilization, all of the good stuff that we spoke about last week. The, the normal way of getting yourself into the public markets, making 
making sure that you can raise money from the pub public markets. But direct list a direct listing is something slightly different. So Surfair, instead of going through the IPO process, instead of going through the roadshow, instead of hiring an underwriter and book building and getting your anchor institutional investors and getting the price stabilization mechanism such that when you launch at an offer price, you know that it's not going to tank and slightly embarrass yourself. They went for a direct listing. So direct listing is slightly different in the sense that you're not creating any new shares. You're just selling existing shares from existing shareholders. So it's almost like a secondary. It's an exit event or a liquidity event for these founders or these investors that want to get out. There is no book building process. There is no roadshow. So instead of building price discovery through that process and then establishing a range, a price range, and then landing at the upper or lower end, depending on interest, you just have a reference price, a kind of slightly advanced finger in the air as to what this thing could debut at on the stock market. Now, in Surfair's case, the reference price, when it decided to undertake this direct listing, where a percentage of its existing shares would be floated for retail investors or institutional investors to buy on the market, on the, on the public market, the reference price was $20 a share. So that's kind of what uh, Morgan Stanley, the advisors and uh, Molis and Canaccord thought, all right, this is kind of, this is roughly what we hope to expect the demand to be for Surfair's shares. Reference price $20, opened, market opening, bell sounded, $5. So, <laughs> so the reference price just totally overshot the initial demand in the market. And remember, because there's no uh, support structure or stabilization mechanism, there are no anchor institutional investors that have got an incentive to keep the price up on day one, this thing could continue to tank. And by the end of the day, the shares traded at $3.15. And now, one week later, they're trading at $2. So <laughs> they've now got a market capitalization of $125 million. This is tiny, where they expected at a reference price to have a market capitalization of $1.725 billion. So they're basically 10x off. <laughs> this, uh, this sounds like a, a classic sham, as in the founders just will be banging the drum about hybrid electric, fully electric power trains. They have this event. They're going to set a reference price high. But what's the comeback for them? Is there any? I mean, they surely there's not. So then, I mean, could you not just have the, the process of creating this build, this company, hyping it around a particular sensitive technology, and then you exit, make a ton of money, and then who cares what happens thereafter? I mean, <laughs> what, yeah. what, what is the success or failure ratio of these direct listings in, in a more broader context? Yeah, yeah, well, let's, let's, let's talk about that. But I, I, think, I think your sentiment is absolutely right in the sense that this feels like a little bit of a backdoor to, to pass yeah. on risk 
from well from founders or venture investors to unsophisticated potentially retail investors that might get a little bit excited about the notion of of electric planes even though their core business is just doing little kind of turboprop planes from one small city in the in, in the in the south to another small city so so i think i think your sentiment's right and quite frankly this company would never be able to go would be able to ipo through the traditional means with any chance of success it's a you know 28 million dollars of revenue it makes a loss of 15 million dollars a year this is you know this is not a particularly mm. exciting story so 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 you're absolutely right and maybe maybe we can take a look at some of the previous direct listings uh mm. to give it a give a bit of an example but just just before that the, the timing as well like just given the broader macro climate right now and yes it looks more like potential soft landing in the states but a slowdown nonetheless and so you're talking about aircraft carriers which is probably not the go-to play in an economic downturn to be investing in. So what? why have they persevered and just gone with now? I know we've said there's general green shoots maybe emerging in the IPO space, but is there any um, sense of their timing and why they decided to just persevere with this? Yeah, I think possibly out of desperation. Uh, I was just looking at the history of the company and they had a failed SPAC merger which we're going to talk about in the second half of the pod they had a failed SPAC merger with Tucson Holdings Corporation in May 2022 uh, that would have generated 467 million dollars of proceeds at a 1.4 billion dollar valuation so if you're a founder or you're a venture investor in this company and you've anchored yourself at a 1.4 billion dollar SPAC merger valuation and you really want that exit event because you've had it dangled in front of you, you're going to do almost anything you can to, to, to try and get another exit event. And maybe it was Morgan Stanley, you know, saying, all right, we're going to benchmark the reference price off of the SPAC price. Maybe that was a bit of failed logic. But I think, but, but in terms of the, the wider market, I think you're absolutely right in the sense that this probably isn't the right time for a super or a relatively speculative company to go through this kind of direct listing uh, method. The direct listing market has basically been shut since 2021. And a lot of stuff got through the direct listing market that maybe wasn't well enough scrutinized and was representative of a market that wasn't maybe as discerning as it is now. And what's quite interesting about the market now is if there's a good company, and lots of people think that the examples that we gave last week of Oddity and Carver, you know, good companies that actually make profits, they maybe deserve that IPO pop. But companies that don't really have a presence and are really struggling for market share, maybe such as Surfair, maybe they should deserve to be pretty badly treated in the public market. So that maybe this is an example of a well-functioning public market. Yeah, and I was just having a look at your some of your previous comments, and I saw Spotify and Slack, mm. Coinbase, all went through well, direct this listing, which I didn't know. Well, this is interesting. There's a, there's there's a lot of talk about this, and there's a lot of talk about uh, whether it is appropriate to pass 
risk on to the retail investor in this format, right? Mm. So if you look at previous direct listings, you've got Spotify, Slap, Roblox, Coinbase, Warby Parker. These are all these have all generated a decent amount of retail interest and retail traction. We all kind of know these companies. So the hope with a direct listing, bearing in mind that you don't have these big institutional investors anchoring the demand for this sale, the hope is you kind of gain a load of momentum. Coinbase would be pushing this, saying, look, we're going we're gonna to list. And by the way, there's no, you know, one positive for the retail investor is there's no you know, you get first dibs. There's no book building process that goes on beforehand. So you get, you potentially get the pot, right? Mm. You know, that's maybe one way of putting it. But Coinbase, which is, you know, a relatively flawed business model, Coinbase reference price, $250. So that's what they thought they'd get when they direct listed. By the end of the day, they got that pot because in 2021, everything was popping, $328. But now it's at $98. So has the risk, been passed on. And quite frankly, who's selling these shares? The founders, the original investors, they're cashing out. There's no lockup period like there would be for an IPO process. So this all smells pretty bad when it comes to, yeah, and it actually makes I, the, the traditional IPO process look pretty robust, actually. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. I was just thinking, you know, given my job, I work quite closely with marketing, writing a lot of content. I was just thinking Coinbase is like the marketing man's dream to sell this direct listing to the masses because it's kind of like you would just tap into that psychological kind of aspect of what crypto represents and its embodiment. And then it's like, this is your chance to have your piece. I remember the Coinbase um, activities around that time. There was a lot of hype and it was just as crypto was peaking. Oh, <laughs> and then, I mean, it, then the whole world came topic. off. <laughs> yeah, and look, and 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 the original investors and the original founders got pretty rich because look, they they sold their shares. They sold sold a percentage of their shares for that. You know, between two hundred fifty dollars and three hundred twenty eight dollars a share. And now, and kind of the retail investors as the suckers have been holding it down to ninety eight dollars uh, without the institutional investor coming in. And really providing that maybe that flaw, as it were. Yeah, one of those names there was Slack, because um, mm. of course Slack got acquired by Salesforce in the end. So I guess mm. there's a, like a bit of a, a, a journey that they've been through. Then direct listing. I, don't, I wonder how long it was before then they got acquired. Just... Not very long. I don't know, maybe you can maybe you can have a take quick... a look, but I think eighteen months. <laughs> But it, but, it, but it got acquired, you know, so it, so its reference price was $26 a share. By the end of the day, it was $38 a share. And I think it got acquired for $46 a share. So, that, you know, that's, we like to be nice and balanced on this podcast. You know, it's not all bad. Uh, Spotify's reference price was $132. It now trades at $149. These aren't remarkable gains, but it's not like every direct listing is a, is a, is a fail. Mm. And Slack is probably one of the biggest successes. But I would say the from a retail investor perspective, the kind of excitement of getting on board early may be tempered with the fact that there's not all of this infrastructure to support the price that there is in the IPO process. Yeah, it was uh they Salesforce paid 27.7 billion for Slack. I remember when that was happening, 
that was kind of like amid the kind of peak tech kind of covid bubble at the time so they'd absolutely nailed it <laughs> salesforce yeah. had a lot for slack um at the time um but yeah well look it's should we move on to the next one good so yeah let, let's move on and talk a little bit about uh, a vietnamese company so it's unusual to go geographically there but let's do this so vinfast targets august u.s listing and this is not a small SPAC deal at all. Sounds pretty large for a company that I've never heard of. So who, who is this <laughs> company? And maybe we could dive into this kind of mysterious SPAC world a little bit. Yeah, so I think I think this is a really good opportunity to take, uh, well, hopefully take the listener on a journey from how to set up a SPAC in the first place all the way through to a SPAC merger and maybe how the mechanics of a SPAC work. Because I think we all superficially know what a special purpose acquisition company is, but maybe we can uh, dive a little bit into the, the technical elements of it and the investor incentives and why people set them up. So very quickly, we are going to be discussing VinFast, which is a Vietnamese EV manufacturer that is currently owned by VinGroup, which is the largest conglomerate in Vietnam, uh, owned by the wealthiest person, in Vietnam. And it is a company that I think only sold 7,500 EVs in 2022, but wants to grow at the kind of speed, think of it like a Rivian or a Lucid, um, and what wants to scale much like those companies. So high valuation, this SPAC is going to be valued or it's valuing the company at $27 billion enterprise value. And the SPAC merger consists of a company, special purpose acquisition company called Black Spade Acquisition Company, merging with Vinfast. So let's rewind and take it back to the beginning. So back in, in July 2021, during the kind of SPAC hype cycle, a wealthy investor from Hong Kong set up Black Spade Acquisition Company with the intention of going out and finding a business that was private to merge with and take public. So Blackspade in July 2021 listed or IPO'd, closing a $150 million IPO. It actually had, by the way, a green shoe option from City, who were the sole book runner, and it ended up being a $169 million IPO. So what does this mean? This means that Black Spade Acquisition Company now has $169 million to go out and find a company to merge with and buy either a minority stake or a majority stake and basically take that company public through the back door. Worth saying that typically in a SPAC uh, origination, the originator of the SPAC, the person that is running, uh, that's owning the SPAC, Lawrence Ho in this example, going out and trying to find the target, gets 20% of, of the SPAC and 80% is floated. So already Lawrence Ho has 20% of the potential upside of this SPAC, right? And you sell shares for $10 a share. This is pretty typical, right? And it doesn't, and it doesn't get traded because there's no liquidity 
that ten dollars a share until something happens. So it just stays listed at ten dollars a share. If you look at the share price charts, it's ten dollars a share, right? Now, Lawrence and his team have two years to go out and try and find a potential target that they think is appropriate to take public into the US. So the two, the two years started in July 2021, bearing in mind, what are we now? The 2nd of August, 2023, two years passed and actually they couldn't find a target. They couldn't find the target. So, so what usually happens is if you can't find a target within two years, you have to return the funds to the investors. Less of any, so the, the way that it works is you return the funds, less of any SPAC winding up costs plus any interest costs because you put, you put the $10 a share into a trust and it earns a little bit of interest. But what actually happened is that this SPAC asked for an extension from its, its investors and said, look, we've got this company, VinFast, that we're really interested in. Can you just hold on? Can we get an extension to this SPAC period for another year? <laughs> Interestingly enough, about $140 million worth of shareholders decided to withdraw, to redeem. So actually, this SPAC now sits on $28 million of available dry powder to invest. So when we talk about VinFast coming into the public markets at a $27 billion enterprise value, $23 billion equity value, it's still 99% owned by, um, by its existing shareholders. Effectively, because <laughs> Black Spade only has $28 million to play with, effectively, that $28 million is buying a 1% float of the of VinFast. So yes, it's valued at $23 billion, but only $28 million is going to be made public through the SPAC merging process. So, and that's the story that we're talking about today. You know, we're talking about VinFast, hopefully over the next few months, becoming a US listed company by merging with Blackspade. Blackspade will change the name of that company to VinFast, and it will float on the, I think it's on the, on the NASDAQ. So that is a little bit of just how the process of a SPAC works. Uh, obviously, there are a lot of there are a lot of intricacies there as well. Yeah, I got two two questions. You mentioned there the kind of lucid Rivian, who have been <laughs> who are absolutely crushed after that EV bubble that we had. I think there was one. What was it? Polestar was valued bigger before its IPO than Volvo, <laughs> who is the parent company. Um, so it was like really going pretty nuts at the time, but just makes me think looking at VinFast's numbers you were just mentioning the volume and the amount that they lost last year and looking at the performance of Lucid and Rivian and looking on the macro landscape of people buying EVs which are expensive comparative to uh, diesel products in terms of uh, in terms of cars so it's like how I don't understand how people can even entertain as an investor that this is a good idea <laughs> other than just um 
facilitating, as you said, the process on behalf of the existing. Yeah, I, I think I think I think you're probably right. And yeah, I think Rivian's uh, Rivian IPO and popped 110 billion dollar market cap. I remember speaking to some students back in the, back in the day when it happened, and they were quite bullish on Rivian yeah. back in 2021. Its market cap is now 26 billion. So you know, riding riding the crest of the hype cycle right right down into the bottom. But I think from a from an investor's perspective, maybe you would say, much like a venture capital strategy, you would say, all right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna invest, you know, two percent of my net worth across 10 of these different EV manufacturers. And look, if one of them hits the Tesla explosive growth, then it doesn't matter if all the other ones go to zero. Yeah, you know, I don't really know which one's gonna be the winner or the winners. So maybe I'm just gonna go across three or four of them and not and not risk too much of my capital but from just to kind of step back into the black spade uh the reason maybe to invest in black spade or well, a you know you're investing something where you don't know what you're going to end up merging with so a you need to trust the credibility of the person setting up the spat in this case in this case lawrence ho but also just a little bit about the mechanics so whenever you buy into a spat whenever you buy into a SPAC IPO, you actually buy a unit as opposed to a share. So a unit consists of, this is just typical, a unit consists of a share worth $10 and a warrant or a fraction of a warrant, which is basically an option to purchase shares in the SPAC for a price determined within the, within the prospectus. So these investors in Blackspade, they bought, they spent $10 buying a share, which gave them half an option, half a warrant to buy shares in the future at $11.50 a share. And bearing in mind that after the announcement of the merger with VinFast, the SPAC, <laughs> the, the uh, Black Spade shares, which would be trading at $10, suddenly popped to about $12.50. Suddenly you've got an in-the-money warrant, in-the-money option that you can exercise and actually get some upside. So from a... I kind of get that from a new investor's perspective, called Finfast, it loses $2 billion a year. But actually, from an initial SPAC IPO investor perspective, there's a little bit of a sweetener or a kicker in the form of that warrant. Feels again like the retail person is getting a little bit of a rough ride here. Um, they're kind of used as a mechanism for rich people to make more money, it seems, or more sophisticated investors to see some upside. Um, but look, one of the things here, my final question was about, um, I think you mentioned City was the sole book runner on this particular last one you've discussed. So um, in terms of an investment bank, what proportion of their activities, um, I know it's like now is probably not quite the optimal time to ask this question because activity generally has been very low and is slowly returning, but what would you expect in like normal times, let's just call it, would be a proportion of deals that they'd be working on as a sell-side institution that would be SPAC or direct listing as opposed to just a normal IPO process? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. And obviously it depends on business cycles. And quite frankly, you know, SPACs have been around for a long time, but they only really started to become part of the kind of public uh, discourse in 2019, 2020 as markets look for new ways of basically making money, uh, maybe at the expense, as you say, of retail investors. 
Um, and in 2021, there were actually there was actually more money raised in SPACs than there was in IPOs, <laughs> which is quite a remarkable rise <laughs> of the SPAC market. 613 SPACs in 2021, 86 in 2022. So the market just died. So you would be expecting in a typical, let's say the market settles into the rhythm that we expect it, whereas SPACs are still, where SPACs are still going to be a thing, but they're not going to be the main thing. You'd expect it to be five, five percent of your of your equity capital markets desks kind of public listing revenue, bearing in mind that they get revenue from all sorts of other things, kind of rights issues and dividend recaps and things like that. It shouldn't be a big, it, sh- it should be super, super niche mm. because it's a <laughs> it's a really, really niche uh financial product. Right. So on that point, then I assume that just like you mentioned before, you'd have sector-focused teams. You'd basically have the SPAC person or SPAC team that are optimized to have all the know-how, the legal know-how, the process. Would that yeah, be right? yeah. You would have you would have within an execution team. Maybe if you were a large enough bank, maybe you would have a whole team that's dedicated to SPACs. But again, mm. that's super frothy. Uh, and you could hire a team and then fire them the year later. So it would probably be someone within an equity capital markets team where if there is a if there is a potential spat, they'd be the ones that are interested. But I wouldn't yet say that it's become a, a cornerstone uh, revenue stream. Well, I hope it hasn't become a cornerstone revenue stream for, for investment banks. Yeah. Well, you know, just like the job cuts and lack of bonuses or anything like that in the current context for a lot of investment banks, I'm sure, as you just said, how frothy it was and how the boom was so huge. Just what, two years ago, I'm sure everyone got handsomely paid at that that point in time um, for the banks. So look, I feel like there was quite a lot there to digest for anyone listening. So 100% encourage you to Um, drop any comment on Spotify, use the Q&A function. Um, I can notify Stephen, get him to reply, or we'll share this on our normal social channels. Feel free to leave a comment. And if there's anything there that wasn't crystal clear, I'm sure um, Stephen can do a bit of a wash up on those comments and and, and help out. So yeah, Stephen, thank you very much as ever. And uh, good to be back with you and, and see you next week. Thanks, Sam.